Well, once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to begin once again in verse number 1. Although verses 6 through 14, really verses 8 through 14, are going to be our passage this evening. But to help us enter back into the stream of Paul's thought, which I would argue really has begun in chapter 1. And all that Paul has dealt with, he has been working... I think, towards the end that he is going to reach at the end of chapter 4. And that just would be the way that I would understand the entire section that he is, all that he has been saying, or or to put it this way, all, all that he has been correcting, right, because he has been addressing fatal flaws within the assembly, All of those fatal flaws can be resolved if his goal, which we will discover next week, is met. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, or against myself is the idea. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from one another, from another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now ye are full... Now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor. Working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. And we're going to stop there, although Paul certainly doesn't. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We have been instructed in Philippians to have the mind of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we understand that Paul had that mind. 
that he thought about his life and his ministry as Jesus does. And I pray that we would have that mind. And that we would understand how that mind would operate in our present world, in our present situation. And so bless please, Father. We, we rely upon the illumination of your spirit and your instruction to teach us. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, of course, has planted this church. We can read about that again in the book of Acts, chapter 18, when he is at Corinth. Apollos has an important ministry there. And Paul and Apollos are crisscrossing between Ephesus and Corinth in the planting and establishment of this church. It is a very gifted church. Um, It has all of the necessary spiritual elements to be a towering influence in the lost world and a testimony to the believing world. But it is a greatly troubled church and it is divided over human personality. Um, It has embraced worldly wisdom and in so doing it has sacrificed God's wisdom. It has pursued worldly methodology and in so doing it has sacrificed God's methodology. And as we work our way through chapters 1 and 2, there are these contrasts. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The message of God and the message of the world. The method of the world and the method of the Lord. These are contrasts, stark lines that are drawn. And Paul, in this passage, will return to a different form of contrast. Um, Not that it's not anchored in reality, but he's using the contrast to make a significant point. And he's pointed out to the Corinthians, not only that they are wrong, but he has explained to the Corinthians why they are wrong. They are, in Paul's language, puffed up. They are filled with air. They have an inflated view of themselves. Because they are wise in the world, they think that that automatically carries over into wisdom in the assembly. And they are then now biting and devouring each other, to use the language of Galatians, when it comes to the good men that God has given them rather than view them as they should, as subordinates and laborers of the Lord, all working in the same vineyard for the same master, they are viewing them as in some way or another being superior to other of the Lord's laborers. And Paul takes those analogies of a farmer and of being an under-rower and of being a household steward, and he transfers them to himself and to Apollos, so that he might illustrate the point about the proper way to think. So Paul does, and we'll see this, and we'll we'll really get into this a little bit more in chapter 5 and 6. Because Paul is not only correcting them and instructing them, one of the things that Paul does, and he goes back and forth between this, with a group of people who are, on the one hand, very gifted, and relatively sophisticated. But on the other hand, very impressed with their grasp of things. Paul has the tendency to really, more than in other letters, to really reason through an argument with these people. To really try and extract from them 
right? To, to dig out from them the logic of what he's trying to convey. But he's not really doing that in this passage. In this passage, and in, in this portion, and, and really right on down through the end, he will take a rather stern tone at times with them. And in fact, when you get to the very end of the chapter, he will pose the question, what, what Paul would you like to see? Would you like to see the gracious, kind Paul? Or would you like to see the Paul who comes in all of the authority of an apostle? Which when you read, folks, about the kind of things that Peter and Paul were able to do through God's Spirit to the opposition, to blind them, to defeat them, then when Paul says something like that, everybody ought to sit up straight and pay great attention. What I want to do this evening in verses 8 through 14 is rather than just walk through it sequentially like we usually do, let's just ask some questions of the, ta- of the text. All right? In verses 6 and 7, which we dealt with last week, right? he applied some of what he'd said to himself and Apollos. He singled himself and Apollos out from other influential leaders to make a point. And the point is, right, the questions that are developed in verse number 8. Who made us differ? We're different because the Lord made us differ. What do we have that we didn't receive? Nothing. God gave it all. Then why would we boast? Why would we brag about something that somebody who is sovereign gave to us? Those are the questions he would would ask. In verse number 8, and I put in my notes that it is obvious, but maybe it's not obvious, But in verse number 8, Paul now begins to use sarcasm with the Corinthians. Right? He is taking a bit of a dig. And remember, it's not just Paul. This is the Spirit of the Lord. He is taking a swipe at their inflated sense of themselves. Really? You guys really think that you are all that. And he uses then three expressions In verse number 8, now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us. You're full. Right? In other words, if if, if you ask God what the Corinthians thought about the First Baptist Church of Corinth, this is what they this is what God would say. Oh, they're very satisfied with themselves. They're full. They're, 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 they think they've got everything that they need. And they think that they are rich. And this is a criticism that the Lord levied against the church at Laodicea. You think you're rich. right? You've got nice electric lights and padded pews and central heat and money in the bank. And anything that comes along that you think you ought to do, you've just got the resources to do. I hope that wouldn't be how he would describe us, but you're rich. And you reign. You exercise kingly powers. Now, one of the reasons, folks, that we can put our finger on the fact that Paul is speaking at the very least tongue-in-cheek is the fact that he immediately contradicts that. Verse number 8. Now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign. 
In other words, you think you reign, you think of yourselves as reigning, you think of yourselves as full. It is not true, but I sure wish it was true. But it's not true. And folks, before we go any farther, let us understand that. It is not true. They were not reigning as kings. The church of Jesus Christ does not reign as a king yet. The church is not full as it someday will be. And it is not rich as it someday will be. And in verse number 14, again, we're just, I just kind of want to put some questions to this. What, does, what is Paul's perspective? How does he, right? He's, he's talking to, under the inspiration, he's talking to the Corinthians, first of all, about how they see themselves, and then secondly, about how God sees them. And that they're not the same thing. And then Paul writes in verse number 14, which will become, which really is kind of a hinge verse that leads us into the rest of the chapter, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. So Paul is not trying to embarrass them in what he is saying. Which is, right, just if we just kind of pause from the text a moment and just think about a practical application, folks, in in, in any church, we'll really get into this in chapter 5, sometimes we are required to deal with things that are embarrassing for some people who are on the receiving end of them. It should always be the attention of the assembly that embarrassing or humiliating people in dealing with some things publicly is not the goal. It is sometimes a necessity, but it should never be the purpose And so Paul writes, I'm not saying this to embarrass you. I'm not trying to get you to think of yourselves as morons or idiots. But you don't see this clearly. Your view of yourself in this world is distorted. And since it is distorted... we'll get to this, folks. We'll talk about this. But the Corinthians have written to Paul. And the Corinthians want to know about the limitations of liberty when it comes to eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. As we will see, as you already know, a very complicated, highly nuanced element of Christianity. It takes a lot of wisdom and maturity to navigate utilizing things in this world without making God angry. That's what they want to talk to Paul about. But Paul is in effect saying, before I can talk to you about something like that, we've got to get this nailed down. Do you guys understand something? Do you understand where you're fit in the world? Do you understand what a church is? What a church does? Where you fit within an assembly? I don't think you do. I don't think you get it. I don't think you get what's going on here. So we can't talk about 1 Corinthians 8 until we talk about 1 Corinthians 4. So Paul is writing, folks, to go back to verse number 14, Paul is writing words that sting. In other words, if the Corinthians read that letter and they were not stung by those words, they wouldn't have read them correctly. Those words were written to capture their attention. 
But they were written to instruct them, not simply to humiliate them, not simply to embarrass them. So what is Paul's perspective? That is his perspective. The Corinthians are wrong. And he is going to be straightforward in the wrongness of their position, but for their good, not for their detriment. Which brings us to this, what is the problem? As Paul brings his perspective to bear, what is the problem that Paul sees? And what Paul does then is walk through the way his life (coughs) differs from the way the Corinthians think their lives are as a church. Which is the correct view? Which is the preferred view? So in verse number 8 again, you have the Corinthian perspective. You are full. You think of yourselves as full. Satisfied. In Acts 27.38, the word is translated with eaten enough. When they had eaten enough. And even now you are rich. And this word is used 12 times in the New Testament. 10 of the 12. It is clearly used with material goods in view. In other words, folks, I would hope that we would never, I would hope that we would never, ever think as an assembly that our bank balance is a reflection of our spiritual condition. That we must be good Christians because we have a lot of money. Because that is exactly what is being tackled here. How could, how, look at all we have. How, 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 could, how could we be out of, possibly be out of sync with the Lord? Look at all we have. And you already think of yourselves as reigning. And I don't know that, you know, we can get into that, but I don't want to, get, I don't want to go down that road, you know, whether... Whether, whether these, Paul is not treating this as people who have a, a misunderstanding of the tribulation or the kingdom. He's not talking to them about whether they ought to be premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial. He's just looking at them thinking, you guys think that you're already running things. You're already in control and in power. So in contrast to verse number 8, the perspective of the Corinthians, Paul begins to describe for them his life. But you'll notice, folks, that in verse number 9, it is not just Paul's life that he is talking about. I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, plural, last now again I don't want to bog down in this because we could talk about it forever and never come to complete agreement but there is some discussion about whether Paul is using the word apostle there in the office sense like he and Peter or whether he is using it in the mission sense in Acts chapter 14 and verse number 14 Barnabas is called an apostle He was never one of the twelve. 
He doesn't hold the office, but he occupies the function. And I think that that would be the way that Paul is using it here, but I couldn't prove it, and I certainly would not fight you over it, other than to point this out, that only in the functional sense of the word could he be including Apollos. And he most certainly must be. So when he says, God has set forth us, the apostles, he's talking about those men that God has commissioned on the mission, men like John Mark, and men like Timothy, and men like Titus, and men like Barnabas. So, so here's the contrast, right? You guys are living and talking like you're already reigning. I wish you did reign. Because if you reigned, we would reign. Because remember, folks, at the end of chapter 3, we're all in this together. We've all got the same Lord, and we're coming to the same place, and we've all got everything is ours. So when Corinth reigns, Paul will reign. But Paul's not reigning. And in fact, Paul says, not only are we not reigning, we who are apostles appear to be at the very end of the line. Verse number 9. I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. And what Paul means there, he is referencing something, we talk about it periodically, you've probably heard of it. He's referencing something that was, I don't want to say common, but was well known in, in Roman, the Roman world. The Roman triumph. Triumphs were really lavish and elaborate military celebrations that usually had to be approved by the Senate. When a, when a general would return victorious from a great battle to honor and commemorate him, the Senate might authorize a triumph, a large procession. And of course, the, the, the leader would be at the beginning in the, in the warriors, and, and then the, the treasures, the loot that they had gathered, and then captured prisoners. And then at the very end of the line would be the people that we would romantically think of as the gladiators. These are the people who have been sentenced to death. These are the people that are going to go to the arena and fight to live one more day until eventually they die someday. The end of the line. And Paul said, you guys think that you have everything. And you think because you have a lot of stuff that you're really rich. And you think that you're really reigning as kings. And I wish you were. But, but here's the reality of the situation of those that are apostles. We are at the end of the line. We are at the end of the line. And to go back to verse number 9, folks, Paul is not, and we'll come back to this, Paul is not lamenting this as being a raw deal because if you'll notice the perspective, Paul is clearly attributing this to the work of a sovereign God. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, because those were the people at the end of the line. Those poor souls who were consigned to die, they're being led away to death on that great Roman triumph. And this is because God himself has done it, for we are made a spectacle unto the world. That's a word that you know. Because it's the word theater. It is the word theater. 
We are on the stage and the world is watching. We are, the, we are the entertainment of the world. And not just to the world, but to angels and to men. This is what God has done. God has put us at the end of the line. And he has put us on the stage to be observed as the tail end. <clears throat> you see the great contrast? You guys are reigning like kings in your mind. Let me tell you about the reality that is the daily existence of those who are apostles. Verse number 10. We are fools. You're wise. Because this is what they said. We're wise. Paul said, yeah, you think you're wise. But let me tell you about us. We're fools. We are weak, you are strong. And again, folks, he's he's dealing with this at the very minimum, tongue-in-cheek. You say you're strong. We are really weak. Ye are honorable. You are held in high regard. We are despised. We are held in contempt. Even unto this present hour, verse number 11, at this moment, as I write to you these words, we are hungry, we are thirsty, we are naked, we are beaten, we are abused, buffeted. We have no certain dwelling place. We do not know where we will sleep from day to day. We labor, verse number 12, working with our own hands. We travel at our own expense. We pay our own way. Nobody funds us. Even though we are reviled, which is reproached, we bless. Even though we are being persecuted, we endure it. When we are persecuted, verse number 13, being in defamed, we entreat, we encourage is the idea. Even though we're being trash talked for being a believer, we are appealing to people to be believers. We are made as the filth of the world. We are made as the criminals of the world. We are the off-scouring of all things unto this day, which was a word that the Romans used, the Greek language used to describe the scraping of a pot after you had cooked in it. Right, The scum that resides on the side of a pot after you've boiled chicken in it, that's us. We're the off-scouring of the world. So you see there when Paul talks, what is his perspective? You guys do not think of yourselves properly. And I'm not writing these things to try and embarrass you. I'm writing these things because it is essential that your thinking change. Your minds must be altered in this. 
Well, what is the problem? The problem is you think you have arrived. Whatever that looks like in Corinth, folks. I mean, Paul doesn't elaborate in, in, in the kind of detail that we might want. What does that mean? But I think that we all understand, folks, the perils of, of believing ourselves to be self-sufficient and sufficiently educated and sufficiently sophisticated in the world that we can navigate life and, and navigate our way through the world relatively successfully with our own wits under our own power and we can even get God's work done. Now, I think we know the answer to the question, but there are a couple of questions that we ought to pose to this point because, right, Paul has beaten them up pretty severely and he has painted what appears to be a pretty bleak picture for himself and for all the apostles. Remember verse number 9, he put all the apostles in this. Now, this is something they will tackle next week, but I'll just throw it out there for something for you to ponder. Is the, should, should we now as a church, should Westwood Heights Baptist Church now return to verse number 10 through verse number 14 and try and emulate that line by line? Now, I'm not going to deal with that in detail tonight, but there's something for us to contemplate over the next week, what is Paul, what is Paul's problem? Is Paul envious? Is Paul really writing from a position? You guys are rich, and I'm not, and I just want you to know that that really bothers me. That I have given my life in the Lord's work, and I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tomorrow night. <clears throat> is he envious? <clears throat> is he jealous? We might even ask the question if Paul is just wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe Paul's assessments are completely off. And, and the reason, of course, obviously, folks, that we can't buy into that is that we recognize the inspiration of this book. God is not wrong. He sees the Corinthians clearly, and he sees the condition of his apostles clearly. Which brings us then finally and quickly something that we will explore in more detail next week. What's the point? I mean, if, if somebody besides me came in, right? I'm sitting there in the pew with you. And somebody else came in and said, let me tell you, this is what God says Westwood Heights thinks of itself. And let me tell you why you're wrong. Let me tell you about this group of guys over here. Right? Sometimes these kinds of things happen, by the way, do they not? Some missionary will come in to a church like ours, and he's not being mean or unkind, but he'll just talk about dedicated, faithful believers living in some remote village in some third world part of the country. Do you never feel even a little bit guilty? I think we probably all feel some level of guilt. You know, you know here's, here's Brother Joe, you know, he's, he's a faithful believer. He has to walk three miles to come to church and the top of his prayer list is a new pair of shoes. We go, right? that doesn't describe me at all. What's the point? What's the point? And again, the Corinthians think of themselves if you want to know their biography, their autobiography, it's found in verses 8 and 10. Full, rich, reigning, wise, honorable. 
Paul does not come to that. Right? In other words, folks, Paul doesn't come to that with really a tit for tat. Paul doesn't go, you guys think you're wise, but let me tell you something. I'm really wise. You guys think you're honorable, but let me tell you something. I'm an apostle. I'm really admirable. If anybody's worthy of being honored, it's a guy like me. Into the face of their strength, their richness and their self-sufficiency and their wisdom, Paul brings in a host of people who are suffering. And this is his emphasis. We are suffering. And what he does, folks, in verse number 9, by including all of the apostles, is point out that for a large body of the Lord's servants, suffering is the norm. The church at Corinth wasn't the norm. Suffering is the norm. This is how all the apostles live. They are itinerants. They don't have a lot of clothing because they don't have the wherewithal to travel with a lot of clothing. And they don't have a lot of money because they have to work jobs that they can get to get enough money to get enough food and to get to the next village to preach the gospel. So we are the spectacle, and we are fools, and we are criminals, and we are reproached, and we are despised. That's what the Lord has for us. The paragraph, folks, is not designed to criticize the wealth and the bank account of the, of the Corinthians. That's not the point. And one of the ways we know that's not the point is that Paul will tell the Philippians, I know how to abound. I I know how to live that life as well. But folks, do we understand that being an American Christian with all that it entails, lights, heat, air conditioning, money in the bank, cars, padded pews, carpeting, buildings, even, even the possibility to talk about expanding storage space, these are not reflections of our spiritual condition. These are not indicators that we have that we have God's soft spot, that we have found his tender spot, and he likes us better than others. So we'll explore that in more detail, because I, I think, although I'm not going to do it tonight, I'm pretty sure that I can put a sharper point to what Paul's point is that we will endeavor to find next week. But just a couple of things for us to kick around. Right in light of what Paul has said, if it were, if it were be, to become to the come to the point for us in America that material poverty, mental suffering, true humiliation was what God has for us, would we still want Christianity? If we had to have it at the expense of wealth. And comfort, would we still pursue it? 
That's part of what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to answer. And then that brings me to this question. If we are wrongly oriented, right? If the great value of our Christian lives is our comfort and our wealth and our affluence, and even to some extent, our toleration or celebration or status within the culture, is that not inclined then to make us to be more disobedient if the price of true Christianity is suffering? I mean, I still remember, and this is, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to close with this illustration. Uh, a man that I know well told the story of a church that he was in on staff for a while. They were having a significant moral problem within the assembly. They had one of the men in their assembly who was involved in an incestuous relationship. And it was known by the pastor and numbers of the staff, and in a meeting to discuss what they were going to do about this, the pastor of the church said, you do realize he's the biggest giver in the church. So that if dealing with right and wrong becomes ultimately a dealing with money, these are some of the things that we have to be on guard about if, if, we're, if we've got our perspective skewed, if we have the Corinthian perspective rather than the Pauline perspective on what our lives are about. All right, I'm going to stop there. If you want to grab your prayer bulletin, are there any...